The talk tonight is about discovering balance within ourselves no matter what is happening in our life. There are two teachings that the Buddha taught that I'd like to discuss with you tonight. The first is the eight worldly conditions, or loka dhamma. And the second is the teaching of dukkha. Dukkha means that because of impermanence, because the nature of life is to change, that our existence is marked with insecurity or uncertainty, that we never know what's going to happen. The reason I want to talk about the eight worldly conditions and dukkha tonight is that if we can pay attention to life just as it is, and that's what Vipassana is about, it's seeing clearly life just as it is over and over. If we can do that, we can learn what to expect in terms of the human existence. We learn how life is. Maybe it's not how we want it to be, um, but it's uh, the truth of how life is for human beings. And if we can understand how the human existence is, really, it helps us to meet the eight worldly conditions and dukkha with, with balance, with understanding and compassion. These teachings can help us learn to take what is ever happening in our life and turn it or transform it into a teaching. So our life can be the teacher. The poet Kabir said, wake up, wake up. You have slept millions of years. Why not wake up this morning? You have slept millions of years. Why not? (laughs) How do we wake up? It's a good idea. On retreat, mostly what we work with in terms of, you know, the long days uh, that we experience is developing concentration. Mostly we're learning how to just rest the attention with a neutral anchor. We learn to seclude the mind from the worldly conditions, from dukkha. Uh, From the seclusion comes a kind of relaxation, rest. We're building up the energy so that we can explore life as it is. Without the concentration, um, there's no possibility of seeing life as it is. And it's possible to uh, be in the present moment very lightly. It doesn't mean necessarily that we have a microscopic attention, but it's this ability just to, to be with the walking, just to be with a step, just to be with a sound. Um, very lightly and not off in some kind of fantasy or holiday or uh, agenda on how things should be. And from this ability to build up the energy through this concentration or rest or seclusion, uh, there's this space in the mind. It brings about a spaciousness 
so that we can learn to explore life as it is. When we do start to explore life as it is, we can begin to notice what the Buddha taught about the eight worldly conditions, Lokadhamma, or about dukkha. What is Lokadhamma? A loka is a being. A loka can be an animal or a human being, a man or a woman, a whale. Any being is a loka. And dhamma, most of you know, dhamma means law or truth. Loka dhamma means that um, there are natural consequences to having taken birth as a being in this world. That because of how life is, there are certain conditions that we have to contend with in being here in the present moment. Lokadhamma is like the shadow that follows us when the sun is out. These laws of Lokadhamma are following all beings. Uh, and we're also chasing these uh, eight worldly conditions. We're, f- we're running away from them and we're trying to get them. <laughs> they come in pairs. The first pair is gain and loss. And when, you, when I'm describing these, try to keep in mind how so much of our thinking on a retreat or in our life revolves around these worldly conditions. So the first pair is gain and loss. The second pair is honor and dishonor, or fame and obscurity. The third pair is pra- praise and blame. And the fourth pair is happiness or contentment and misery or discontent. The Buddha said that these worldly conditions obsess the world. The world revolves around these worldly conditions. So the first pair is gain and loss. It's fairly easy to see in this world that gain is often about acquiring desirable or pleasant things. It could be that we get some land or a house or we have a successful job. Or it can mean essential things like clothing or shelter, a home. And the opposite of gain is loss. It would be that we would not have a home, not have a good job or any kind of job, not have any of the essential things such as warmth or shelter, any kind of prosperity. At IMS, when we're on retreat, there's still um, the gain and loss taking place. It might be that we don't like what's happening for lunch. (laughs) That's loss. Or maybe somebody sits next to us in the hall that has the flu. (laughs) Uh, Maybe um, we get a really nice roommate this retreat, and maybe one other retreat we didn't. Uh, Maybe we have a really nice room this retreat, or maybe we have one of the worst rooms at IMS. (laughs) These are all um, aspects of gain and loss. Honor and dishonor 
the Buddha taught that honor um, includes having friends, having companions, having um, good mates or children. Dishonor means being deprived of any of these, not having friends, not having any children, not having um, any kind of companionship. Sometimes it's easier to be on a retreat, like a three-month retreat, if you do know somebody. There'll be a a gift of having a spiritual friend here. That would be um, honor. Or if you're here all alone, it could be more difficult. And again, remembering that our mind can get very involved in thoughts about gain and loss. You know, just think about the thoughts we've had about relationships or careers or home or um, friends. I mean, it's amazing how so much of our thinking revolves around these worldly conditions. So there's gain and loss, honor and dishonor. There's praise and blame. That means that the times that um, blame means we're being ridiculed or criticized or praise um, means that we're highly esteemed and that everyone likes us. And when everyone likes us, you know it's very pleasant. (laughs) When no one likes us, (laughs) it's quite unpleasant. And that we go through, you know, these different, just think of elementary school. how much praise and blame one had to survive. Um, And in terms of praise and blame, in going through a day at IMS, maybe just going into the dining room at lunch, thinking about how much judgment is going on. You know, if you really hooked all our minds up into a loudspeaker at lunchtime, you'd see what's going on in there, the, the, the self-judgment, the self-praise and blame. Oh, I took just the right amount. <laughs> I'm really doing well today. I pigged out. I'm doing terrible. Look at what that person put on their plate. You know, whatever. It's just, if, you, if you're really paying attention, you'll see it's just the judgment show. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe when, you know, this is a time in the retreat that people really start to assess how they're doing and trying to measure somehow where they are. And it's almost like, you know, we have this inner scorecard. (laughs) And there's a sense of praise and blame and inner praise and blame. It doesn't have to mean an outer praise and blame. Just to notice on a microscopic level, every time you look at a person, to see if there's a judgment. You know, it's almost like this. You know, we can't control it. It's extraordinary how quickly, how quickly the judgments are happening. Trying to have some balance in this world around all of this inner and outer judgment. Can we do this? And the last pair is happiness and misery, or contentment, discontent. The happiness in this case, or contentment, is considered to be material (coughs) or mental. Uh, There might be times of uh, the body is free from physical pain, or the mind is free from emotional or mental pain, how um, happy that can make us. 
And then the opposite is when we have any kind of physical pain or mental or emotional pain. Sickness. Just, just wondering. I wonder what has gone through everyone's minds, you know, as, you know, the colds and flus have, you know, just that when somebody coughs near us and we don't have it yet, you know. (laughs) Or, you know, the fear that comes up around getting sick. And then if we catch it, well, I don't know how long is it going to be. And all the suffering that happens around this discontent with sickness. And then the patience it takes. How long will it last? The surrender. The misery will include being deprived of anything that we want. So just to go over these eight worldly conditions, it's gain and loss, honor and dishonor, or having friends and companions, not having any friends, praise and blame, and happiness and discontent. The Buddha taught that nobody can run away from all four of these pairs, that actually the easy and the difficult, what we would call the good and the bad, they actually come together in life. One can't always get what one wants. We often lose what we have. And sometimes we might have something our whole life, but then when we die, we will lose it. There's not any sense of being able to hold on to something forever. Even the Buddha was criticized and ridiculed at times in his life as a teacher. You know, no one can flee from these conditions in this world. Sukha is happiness. You know, dukkha is the um, uncertainty or uh, dissatisfactoriness of life. And the sukha and the dukkha alternate according to these worldly conditions. By starting to understand that these, these eight conditions or four pairs will come and go and the nature of how things are in our life, we can actually start to have some compassion for ourselves. We can really start to have um, a deep understanding that this is how it is. And it's like this for any being who takes birth in this conditional world. And it's not easy for any of us to find the patience and understanding to have a balance with how these will come and go. Often when we come on a retreat, we'll have some kind of agenda for what we want to get (laughs) out of the retreat. And sometimes it's unconscious, uh, but we usually have something that we're wanting. But again, around this time of the retreat, we'll start to see that maybe we're not really getting (laughs) what we had bargained for. You know, (laughs) this is a theme in a lot of interviews lately. And it's important to see, you know, if we can let go of the agenda, what is it that, what is the teaching that we really are getting? You know, we are getting a lot of teachings, uh, but it might not be what we did want. And it's really being able to see that there are these forces at play and that often if we can surrender to what we're getting, uh, we develop a a tremendous amount of understanding. You know, that is 
where we are. It's just what we need to grow. (coughs) So what is the relationship between these eight worldly conditions, or loka, dhamma, and dukkha? (coughs) The way the Buddha taught uh, the three characteristics of existence, it started... It starts with the nietzsche or impermanence, that because things are <laughs> changing, and actually things are changing <coughs> with such a velocity, I mean, it's so amazing how quickly things are changing, um, that the existence of anything that takes birth in this world is, um, there's a fragility, there's an insecurity or vulnerability in life as it is. So remembering that the loka dhammas come in pairs, gain, loss, honor, dishonor, praise, blame, contentment, discontentment, that all of these are coming and going. Uh, This is because the nature of life is constant change. Anything can happen. Stephen, at some point, will talk about the different kinds of dukkha. Uh, I wanted to bring up something that I saw the other day in going to a grocery store, um, kind of about a 45-minute drive from here. It's somewhere that I'll often go. It's a big health food store. And next to this, at this mall, there was a huge banner, a huge sign displayed, and it said, Tropical Tropical Fish, Five-Day Guarantee. It's, it's a promotion, you know, it's like this huge, it's, you can see it from the highway, it's huge, and I just stared at it, you know, it's just like, is this something they're proud of, you know, is this, <laughs> you know, has anybody thought how this tropical fish feels out there? <laughs> you know, this is dukkha, <laughs> this is a Nietzsche at its best. Oh. <laughs> It's amazing how people can, you know, really go after that. Like, wow, what a good deal, you know, five days. <laughs> this, this, there's so many ways to perceive dukkha. Recently, the last course that Steve and I were teaching, I was just about to go out for a walk, and there was only one place to go for a walk out on this road. The student came up to me, and I was in this space of being really busy and tired. It was toward the end of the retreat. And she came up to me, and she looked really kind of shocked uh, and afraid. And she said, Michelle, this tree, this tree just fell down in front of me in the road. And I thought, big deal. <laughs> I tried to, like, get there for it. Oh, you know, it's okay. You know, just go sit. It's okay. And she's like, but no, this huge tree fell. And I didn't really get it. You know, I said, okay, you know, it's okay. And then I went for this walk, and it was huge, this huge tree. I mean, it fell down right across the road. Cars were backed up. You know, it was just tremendous. Uh, and, you know, she was just walking along, and just out of the blue, you know, she could have been killed. It was huge, this huge tree. <laughs> I felt a little bad, <laughs> not taking it a little more seriously. Um, you know, that's, that's that sense. That's the shock for her was that, you know, anything can happen. 
That's that vulnerability. And anything can happen, you know, no matter how long we practice or you know, what good yogis we are. You know, it's like anything can happen in our life. This, um, because of this impermanence, because of this change in lokadhamma, a worldly condition, because of this moment-to-moment change, uh, we need to find a way to come home within it. The search for balance or peace within oneself is sometimes portrayed as taking a lifetime in some fairy tales. This is a narrator talking to a raven in George MacDonald's fairy tale, Lilith. The narrator said to the raven, Oblige me by telling me where I am. And the raven answered, That is impossible. You know nothing about wareness. The only way to come to know where you are is to begin to make yourself at home. The only way to come to know where you are is to begin to make yourself at home. And this is what we're doing on a retreat. We're, by, by this continuity of paying attention over and over again, we start to be with how life is, not how we're wanting it to be, not with all our agendas, but just <coughs> to be with how it is, moment to moment, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And it's interesting to just assess in a day how much of our experience was acceptable to us. And it's, it's really amazing when we see how little we are at home. You know, there's so many uh, ranges of experience. Maybe there's uh, weariness or the fear of judgment or hot daggers in the back or abdomen. Or maybe there's evenness. Or maybe there's boredom. Or maybe we're not deep enough. Or maybe we're not um, mindful enough. Uh, There's so many spaces in life to go through. There's restlessness, sleepiness, um, anger. There's wanting. There's not wanting. Helplessness feeling defeated. And there's so many pleasant states of feeling concentrated or secluded or peaceful or those effortless times when we really do feel at home or high energy, joy, excited, exhilaration. In Vipassana, we're coming home to all these places, all these landscapes. We're not trying to get rid of anything. You know, we're really coming home to be with what our human experience really is. We're often wanting just the peak experiences in life. Uh, That's what we usually find acceptable. And there's no peace. There's no happiness. There really is no sense of being home in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment reality. So if we're going through all these spaces and if there's this desire to change what's happening rather than experience what's happening, there's no peace. We're holding on to something that 
was happening some other time. We're holding on to pleasure. We're attached to something else. And we can't be at home in that moment. Or we're pushing away something unpleasant. And we don't know how to be at home with restlessness or at home with boredom. This is violence. You know, this is the roots of violence in our hearts. This constant dissatisfaction with what's happening. And even if it's the slightest bit of, of wanting, or the slightest bit of dissatisfaction, you can see how big it can be, how it colors, how we are um, feeling about what's happening. If the intention shifts to actually being able to pay attention just to what is happening, it's a revolution. You know, we're no longer tied to experience. We're no longer a victim of pleasure or pain. We're, we're just at home. We are free in that moment. And it just, it happens, it can only happen in a moment when we finally let go of wanting something else to be happening except for boredom. You know, it's that, it's almost like the trumpet sound, you know, and the white flag goes up and it's that surrender. It's it just, it's wonderful. And then we've opened to a whole other aspect of life. You know, we've recovered another part of ourselves because it's the truth of things. And that's, that's really coming home. Actually, what's really happening is that there's birth and death. Birth and death. We often take the birth moment in our life or the death moment in our life to be, you know, that, that intensity and everything in between is, you know, so what? Uh, th- those are really the biggies. But it's really happening every time a sound takes birth and passes away or every time a breath takes birth and passes away. There is those constant birth and death moments over and over. So in Vipassana, we're becoming more and more intimate with life. We're becoming more and more aware of this intensity of, of life, of birth and death, birth and death, over and over. Uh, it's out of control. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, and it's not easy, again, like I said, to have balance with it because we can't control whether something that's taking birth is unpleasant or whether something that's taking birth is pleasant or neutral. Without the mindfulness, there's not the possibility for the equanimity. The mindfulness is what enables us to see clearly. And then if we're seeing clearly, then there's a possibility for being okay with how it is. And when the mindfulness and equanimity are in balance, that's when we have that peak experience. That's when we really feel at home. Because even if a thought comes through, the most horrendous thought or the most wonderful thought, we don't, we don't take it personally, we don't bite. There's this uh, amazing freedom. If the equanimity ripens and it stays in balance and we're okay with what ha- is happening, it allows the mindfulness to get sharper. You know, that they, they really are interrelated, the mindfulness, equanimity, mindfulness, equanimity. <coughs> Ultimately, it's our willingness to be with just what is happening that's so essential to our peace 
you know, if it's if there's that capability to have that non-judgmental attention, um, where the intention really is just to be with how it is, to explore. It's that pure exploration uh, that makes it possible to have balance. My uh, equanimity is that sense of being okay no matter what's happening. Sometimes we have glimpses of of this ability to just flow with how it's happening, to really let go of control. And it might be that it happens for a few moments, and it might be that it lasts longer for us. Uh, But it's when there's no wanting in the mind, and there's no not wanting in the mind. The I, that I asserting itself isn't happening, and that's why it feels so wonderful. It's the absence of greed, it's the absence of hatred or delusion. It's that moment of feeling right in the present moment. Uh, We're not out of balance with wanting or not wanting. These moments are very, very pure. They're so pure, they have such a power that they make possible for the path of purification to happen. You know, this is called the path of purification. And often at this point in retreat, we even forget what we're doing here. You know, we've been here for so long. You know, why? Why are we here anyway? Well, <laughs> it is. It's. It's. We're going through. It's like cleaning house. You know, where it's a cleansing process. And those moments, and again, it might be once a day, or once every two days, or three days. They're little glimpses that we get, or maybe longer. Um, but those are so pure, they have such power that they make space for the dirt to come out. It's supposed to do that. You know, if it wasn't happening, you know, something would be wrong. But we take those moments of purity and think, well, this is it. This is what, where I should be all the time. A fully enlightened being is there all the time. Someone who is free of greed, hatred, and delusion is there all the time. But if we're not, then, then those places of purity will actually lift the aversion or lift the, the attachment. We'll get to see it clearly. What's interesting in this process is there'll be those moments where we feel at home and pure in the purity, and then when the that's when the mindfulness and equanimity are strong uh, and in balance. And when it starts to go, if we don't have a lot of practice with doing that over and over again, our mind will just scream. Such aversion to it. We just hate that that feeling of balance goes. And so we have to learn by going through it over and over again to accept that this is how the practice happens, that the purification happens that way. Another aspect to this is just as as the mindfulness and equanimity are going down and out of balance, usually the dirt is coming up, the layer. It's sort of like um, getting clobbered, actually. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's not only that we're losing the mindfulness and equanimity, but actually a layer that's difficult to open to is surfacing. And so often we're, we're still attached to that purity, and we're not at all interested <laughs> in what's surfacing. You know, we want that nice stuff. We don't want to look at what we need to look at to grow. And so what we need to do at that point is, is open to that layer 
Uh, but we usually fight it. We're holding on to the purity. We're fighting the layer, and that's usually when you call it a multiple <laughs> hindrance attack. You know, it's it's difficult, uh, and this is a lot of the the gift, the preciousness of a long retreat is going through this over and over again and getting to know it, and you know, just getting to know that this is what happens, and that we can start to have balance with the whole show. That we start to understand oh, this layer is surfacing, this is what I need to learn to get free. This is What you're struggling with is just what you're needing to look at to be liberated. It's usually very simple. It's usually aversion, attachment, or delusion. It's simple, but it, you know, it's not so easy to maneuver through the territory. If we expect these peak experiences to happen, usually if we have these glimpses of being home in this purity, it's, it's the sweetest. It's so easy to get attached to. I mean, it's, it really takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of ripening of the equanimity to be able to have those times pass away without having a fit, you know. <laughs> it's really not so easy. Um, but the slight, you can't have those moments of purity or, or deep peace if we're wanting them. And the more we want them, the more and more they just, they just get further and further away. Because if you're wanting something, that's, that's the I again. It's the I asserting itself. So it's a paradox. It's, it's, just, it's, it's only when we totally let go of wanting these, this peace that it will come. And as I've said before, you can't fake it. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've said to myself, oh, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I have another experience like that. You know, and, but I really do. I want it really bad. You know, you can't, you just, you know, when you go through the mind, it's just like, oh, I don't care. Yeah, right, I don't care. Yeah, but, you know, you just have to keep going because you do care. <laughs> Until It's like holding a hot potato. And you just hold it and hold it, and it's getting hotter and hotter. And you'll finally get so sick of it that you'll drop it. And then when you drop it, that'll eventually make space for it to come again. And that's the process over and over. One of the aspects of being a human being is that we're kind of slow. (laughs) We're not really quick at this. (laughs) Equanimity takes time to ripen. That's sort of the human predicament. (laughs) One of the ways that I wanted to talk about working with expectation in a positive way it's to see that um, if we have something difficult that happens for us in a retreat, that actually if we can just surrender and say, this is what happens when, blah, 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 um, it makes working with the situation much easier. So that's what, when I was talking about the whole context of Lokadama, the ups and downs of life, or dukkha, the, the uncertainty, if we can 
understand or expect that this is just how life is. It's no surprise, you know, it's no surprise that it's changing. It's easier to, to work with. Uh, and I, I wanted to give a few examples of how this can take place um, with our practice. Uh, for example, with, with the dining room. For many years, I used to avoid eating in the dining room, and I didn't know why. I'd always eat off by myself. And then I did a staff retreat, and I noticed I decided that I was going to sit in the dining room and work with whatever this thing was that I was so afraid of. And I noticed that when I sat in the dining room, and I always sit so that I looked out the window outside, and so I didn't look at people. And this is when I discovered this thing about judgment, that any time you look usually at a person, you can't control it, there'll be a judgment. And I had such aversion to it, I didn't even want to face it. And so that retreat, um, instead of having the sense that this is something that shouldn't be happening, the judgment shouldn't be happening, I decided to say to myself, judgment is what happens when I go to the dining room. Do you see the difference? It's just, it makes it workable. Instead of trying to manipulate and change it, the revolution is that deep acceptance. It's that moment when we surrender to life as it is. So instead of when you look up at somebody and you notice a judgment, there's, there's a judgment of the judgment, and the ju- it's this endless aversion to this, this process. There's this, there's this opening, and one can go, oh, it's just judging. It's not personal. It's how the human life is. And it might not be that it happens every time, but it <laughs> the odds are pretty good that it will. And this can happen with anything. It's like if maybe there's someone in the family that it's difficult to talk with on the phone, or maybe to see. And often we so much go through this whole thing where we think, if only this person would change, you know, if it's only, you know, if only I could do something about it. And I have a particular family member where I call on the phone, and this is how it was for me for years. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call because I didn't want to experience the feelings coming up um, of sadness or anger uh, when I talked to this person. And eventually, I learned by doing this with the judgment, I could do it with anything, you know, calling the phone and expecting, this is what happens when I call this person. I'll have to learn, you know, I'll need to learn to work with the sadness or the anger. And it's like this with anything on the retreat. Anything you're having difficulty with, it's that, it's that surrender that brings the equanimity and the ability to work with it. <clears throat> I think I, I saw this the most clearly over a long period with guilt. And I saw, uh, when I first started to sit, <clears throat> that whenever I would wake up in the morning, that I had this very strong conditioning that I didn't know about, that I wasn't working hard enough. And no matter what, no matter if I slept two hours or ten hours or eight hours, when the bell would ring, guilt. You know, it was just, this is what happens when the bell rings. And, but it took me years to figure out how to work with it. You know, for years I would <clears throat> think if I just slept less, I wouldn't have to face the feeling of guilt. I could get rid of it. You know, and, or 
I would, I would bargain with it all the way of waking up and getting ready to go to the sitting. I would try to think of ways to get rid of it. <coughs> and eventually, there came the moment where I thought, maybe I should try working with this. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I can try accepting that this is happening. And this sounds very simple. But it's like this with anything. Maybe for you it's the coughing in the hall. (coughs) (laughs) And it's the same thing. You know, why is this happening? I wish this wasn't happening. I can't stand it. And the closer it gets to us, usually the worse it gets. Uh, And it's, it's, again, trying to see if you can accept that it's happening. It's like this with any old wounds. You know, even the deepest, darkest wounds that have happened for me, the moment when I accepted that, oh, this happened, it became workable. That never makes something that happened necessarily right. It doesn't make anything horrendous or abusive right that it happened. But that it happened, that acceptance is the only way to any kind of peace or workability. You know, and this is, this is the whole direction the Vipassana practice is going to, is that sense of unconditional acceptance, an acceptance of life without conditions. That's real peace. That's what brings happiness. I was reading the newspaper several days ago. You know how sometimes the newspaper can be a bit depressing, you know, (laughs) slightly depressing. The first three pages were all about all these murders that had happened. Uh, And there was this little teeny uh, section that said, a tip of our hat. So I wanted to read you this story. And keep in mind that you know, when we're out in the world and we have a regular kind of job, and this person has a job in the bus station in Springfield, Massachusetts, and just think about what it's like to work, you know, year after year, day after day, and, you know, a kind of crummy place like a bus station, and not, you know, people, human beings aren't the easiest to deal with. Um, and this is, <laughs> this is the end of the day for this person. It was 10 after 6 in the evening at the Peter Pan bus station in Springfield, Massachusetts. A woman in slacks made of four layers of material in various colors with a battered coat, flyaway gray hair, and with a sick or stressed look of a homeless person, walked unsteadily through the waiting room and out toward the buses. A custodial employee looked at her nervously, but the terminal manager was instantly sensitive to both. Let that lady go by and don't say anything to her, he told his worker gently. If she messes up anything, we have to clean it up and we have to be patient. I I just started crying when I read that. It was just incredible. 
if she messes up anything, we have to clean it up and we have to be patient. I know that's such a deep balance of acceptance, of wisdom, of compassion. In the face of dukkha, in the face of lokadama, the ups and downs in life, anything that happens in our life, the least expected or difficult, um, is an opportunity to see if we can open to life just as it is. And vipassana is, is seeing clearly. It's being able to transform our life into our teacher, into the guru. And the more and more of the moments in our life that we're awake uh, mean that we'll have the capacity to develop more and more understanding and compassion. The Buddha taught that one of the highest blessings is to be able to receive the ups and downs of Lokadhamma with, with the deepest equanimity. This, this deep peace is the mind of a fully enlightened being. Now, it is uh, something that we can develop. This deeper kind of happiness and peace isn't dependent on any kind of outer conditions. Any moment when the mindfulness and equanimity is in balance, we're totally experiencing life. We're not distancing ourselves. Just like this man in the bus station, he could really touch the whole situation. He touched it gently. He touched it, responded with care and balance. He didn't make the worker feel badly. He didn't make the woman feel badly. It was just that delicate balance. Each moment when we come back from being lost, each moment we come back from being lost and come to the present moment, this is everything. It's the whole practice. It's all we can do. We can't control that we've gone off. But the, that choice, that, that remembering to come back, it not only helps us to open to life as it is happening, but it also conditions another moment in the future for remembering to come back to the present moment. So this, this, is, a, this is exquisite. You know, it's the exquisiteness of mindfulness that, that twofold purpose of it, which it helps us to come back now, and it also plants a seed for the next moment when we come back from being lost. So there's nothing to worry about in this practice. You know, it's just drop by drop, keep going. Just, just put in your time. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.